Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland on News Talk. Welcome back to Future Proof on News Talk. I'm Jonathan McRae. We're looking back at some of our favourite stories from the year. Have you ever wondered how humans came about the concept of measuring things? How did ancient Egyptians use giant rulers to predict the harvest in coming months? Well, James Vincent is the author of Beyond Measure, the hidden history of measurement from qubits to quantum constants, which is filled with so many fascinating stories. He joined me to take me through some of them. Welcome to the program, James. I have to say, this sounds like a really dull subject. <laughs> yeah, you would be uh, not at all surprised by the number of reactions I get along those lines. You go, oh, you tell people you've written a book. They go, ah, fabulous. What's it about? The history of measurement. Their faces drop. Um, <laughs> it's an understandable reaction. But I mean, it was sort of a surprise to me whilst getting into the subject as well. But measurement really does suffuse everything in life. Uh, I mean, like everything in modern society is built upon on the back of precise and reliable measurements. And not only that, but the way we choose to measure and how we measure, I think really reflects um, how society operates. You know, measurement is a way of focusing attention. It's a way of deciding value. So how we measure things reflects what we value in life. So when we talk about measurement, we're really talking about a lot of things. So when did we start measuring things and, and when did that start to improve? Because there must have been fits and starts where our, our abilities, knowledge and tools began to improve. Absolutely. I think there's sort of um, two strands to that. One is uh, improvements in the accuracy of the measurements we make. And one is in the improvement of the standardization of measurements, i.e. how consistent they are from one time to the next. Those two things are related, but they also sort of have separate evolutionary histories, as it were. So in terms of standardization, that's the sort of the, the way society makes sure that a, a, a meter is always a meter whenever you use it. That is something that sort of ebbs and flows with political control. So when we get the first settlements of uh, humanity in places like the Indus Valley, in the Indian subcontinent, in Mesopotamia, and the ancient Egyptians, these are when you get the first sorts of settled civilizations, where you have a lot of people living together. Uh, you have uh, big um, architectural projects. These are both, um, uh, you know, activities that require consistent use of measurement. You know, if you're going down to the market, you're trading for cloth or you're haggling for grain and whatever it is, you want to make sure that it's being measured Two at the same time. Yeah, exactly. You you say this is a shackle worth? Oh, God, it never is. You need to have someone who can say, yeah, it is or it isn't. And if you're building uh, granaries, if you're building aqueducts, you need to have sort of consistent measurements that make sure what gets laid down in an architectural plan gets translated into a real working building. So whenever there are big civilizations, we have consistent units of measurements that begin to emerge and that are enforced by the authorities. Um, so one of the really famous examples of this comes from ancient Egypt, where you have the cubit. Now, the cubit, um, it's from the Latin cubitum, and it is uh, the measurement from the elbow to the tip of the fingertip. Now, this was something that the ancient Egyptians uh, really standardized. They had sort of um, standard measuring cubits that had to be compared with the royal engineers, and they were incredibly important. You know, they were built, they were used to build the pyramids, for example, but they were also used to sort of um, sort out the Nile and its harvest. So when I was writing the book, one of the things I went to go see was this amazing architectural item called a Nilometer. Now, uh, I, I, can you guess what a Nilometer measures? <laughs> The Nile. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> Specifically, it measures the depth of the Nile's flooding. So, you know, ancient Egyptian society is built upon the flooding of the Nile because that's what creates the uh, the wealth in terms of the crops that used, are used to sustain the ancient kingdoms. 
So the ancient Egyptian priests, for whom the flooding of the Nile was a sort of divine event, was controlled by the will of the gods, used to build these impressive, incredible measuring sticks. They were essentially huge uh, sort of stone pillars built into the Nile. And they would go in during the flooding season and see how deep it was. You know, was it 26, 27 cubits? And from that, they'd be able to predict whether there would be a good harvest. And from that, all sorts of, you know, decisions get made by the pharaoh about, okay, well, how many taxes can we collect? What, where do we direct this wealth? Are we going to go to war with the Hittites? Whatever wow. it might be. Um, so here is a measurement that is entirely integral to the proper functioning of society. You know, if if that measurement had not happened, the Egypt, ancient Egyptian society would have been much more chaotic. They would have not been able to predict what the future held. And I think that is the sort of, you know, it's a good example of the importance of measurement to operating large scale systems of humans, basically. Now, surely even in ancient Egypt, they had basketball players and jockeys. So when you say <laughs> that the cubit was an elbow to fingertip distance, whose elbow to fingertip? Like, did they get pieces of stick or wood to fashion to have the, <laughs> the correct measurement? Because there's huge variability there, right? Absolutely. So this is one of the big problems we have with measurement when we're looking at sort of the ancient history of it. So many of the first units of measurement, like the cubit, they come from the body. They are feet and hands. Nearly every sort of ancient culture, uh, you know, society that I looked at has a measurement of unit based on the foot and based on the hand because they're, they're obvious. Um, but as you say, there is a great deal of consistency in human morphology and the size of humans. So in the Egyptians case, they actually had two different cubits, one of which was sort of the civic cubit, which was set by, you know, um, the internal uh, hierarchy of, of, of priests who basically sort of functioned as a bureaucracy. One was a royal cubit, which was supposed to be defined using the body of the pharaoh. Um, but it is this, you know, it's the sort of the civic cubit that is more important because, yes, although it was originally and said to be derived from that basic measure of elbow to fingertip, um, essentially they just standardized it and picked one. And this is something you see happening many times. So, for example, um, King David I of Scotland, he gave us one of the earliest definitions of the inch. Um, and I think, oh, I should have my dates in front of me, but I think this is around the 13th century. We're talking about 1283 or something like this. And he said, what you need to do is you need to take uh, the thumbs of three men, one small man, one middle-sized man, and one large man. And then you measure the breadth of their thumb on the middle joint when pressed flat against a table. You add those together, and then you divide it by three. And that will give you the average measurement of the inch because it is you know, based <laughs> from these different sizes. That's a very simple approach, but it's essentially the, uh, the methodology that was followed for hundreds, thousands of years, that you would try and take an average of the unit, and then you would just turn it into a standard. And then it becomes about authority. It becomes about someone at the top saying, this is how long a meter is, this is how long an inch is, don't argue with me. Uh, what about the Romans? What have the Romans ever done for us? <laughs> well, in measurement terms, they did a lot for us. So I mentioned earlier that the sort of consistent application and standardization of measurement, it sort of ebbs and flows with whether you have a strong centralized political control. This was true of a society like the ancient Egyptians, and it becomes true again with the Romans. So the Romans were obviously great ones for measuring. Roman roads, straight, straight as you like, long as you like. They had the very consistent system for setting out their barracks whenever they you know, conquered a new territory and folded it in. So measurement was really... Uh, you know, it was a tool of empire. 
and measurement is often a tool of empire. In fact, that's true in more modern examples. But they used it to set, um, you know, to set the pace of their conquest. Pace being the optimum, the optimal turn here, because a pace was one of the, uh, you know, standardized Roman units of measurement. So, for example, we have the mile, and that was originally defined as a thousand paces. It was millis passe, which became mile over time. Another uh, famous Roman unit of measurement is the pound, which became, which was um, sort of inherited then by all these European countries. So it's really interesting when you look at the history of Europe and you look which countries have a version of the pound, you know, Germany, France, Italy, the UK. uh, And these are countries that have had a Roman presence, a strong Roman presence. So they came Mm -hmm. in, they standardized the units. That was good for society. Everyone liked it. You know, um, uh, Romans had, for example, a special class of, um, I guess you would call it a trading standards officer who would go down to the market on a, on a weekend, whenever it was, and they would check and make sure all the traders were using, using correct units. Nice. And this was something they did in order to benefit society. So whenever the Romans go, they left behind Roman innovations. That includes measurement. So th- there are lots of other steps uh, along the way, but I suppose the, the two ones I want to, to focus on are the, the scientific revolution. So when uh, we had an explosion of understanding of science, presumably this all changed um, and will, would change one more um, as recently as the past 15 years. But um, the big change presumably came uh, during the scientific revolution. What did we see in terms of measuring things like heat and weight and distance and so on? Well, I think what we really see in the scientific revolution is less about measurement as units. And it's more about where measurement belongs in, let's call it this hierarchy of knowledge. So the scientific revolution obviously happens over a long period of time, and there's lots of strands to it. But one of the main sort of one of the important strands in that is separating new forms of knowledge from what we'd inherited from the ancient Greek philosophers. So people like Aristotle and Plato. For those ancient Greeks, the idea of measuring the world to know something about it was a bit of a suspect notion. They thought because measurements were so imprecise and so inconsistent that measuring the world didn't really teach you anything new and stable about it. Instead, they were more interested in a philosophy of ideas um, and about, you know, thinking through the logical premises that would let you define truths about the world. The big thing that happens with the scientific revolution is um, measurement becomes more trustworthy because we have advances in a sort of um, technical and mechanical aspects. So you have the invention of things like telescopes, obviously, that help you make more accurate um, measurements of the movement of the stars. Um, This means that measurement takes this new sort of prestige to measure the world is to know something definite about it. And if you think about, um, you know, one of the main tenets of uh, the scientific revolution or what would come out of it eventually, the scientific method. The idea that if you want to know something about the world, you need to do experiments. You need to create a, a scenario that is repeatable and consistent. And then you change one element of it and then you see what that changes about the outcome. That is impossible without consistent application of measurement. If you can't measure the parameters of experiment, you can't ensure it is consistent from one time to the next. So, Mm. you know, I gave the example of telescopes earlier, and this is one clear link to the scientific revolution because, you know, you have the very slow and 
start and stop the cosmological revolution. But a lot of the evidence which overturned the old model of the solar system in which everything was uh, orbiting around the Earth, you have the new uh, heliocentric model. And a lot of that was, um, uh, you know, sort of justified based on the evidence of measuring the stars. That's really interesting. And I suppose that um, focus on the importance of measurement has continued since the scientific revolution. And as I mentioned, in the past couple of decades, we've seen absolute revision of what we (laughs) define as a a kilogram, for example, um, uh, as a second, as uh, as, as, uh, as hot. Um, Can you take me through some of those um, new revisions? Because they they can get really, really crazily precise, which of (laughs) course is really important for modern science. So um, we used to measure a kilogram by a, a sort of a magical golf ball in Paris, isn't that right? <laughs> yes. So for, for hundreds of years, there was just a kilogram. In fact, there were, there were two of these kilograms. One was built and then it was judged to be a little inferior and they built another one. But every kilogram in the world was a copy of that kilogram, which was kept in a vault, uh, underground vault in, in, in Paris by uh, Bureau International de Poitamesieux, the BIPM, which is the sort of governing body of the SI system international, which is better known as the metric system. There's always a lot of jargon in this. All you need to know was there was a kilogram in a vault, every kilogram, a copy of that kilogram. Um, This was the case for a long time for all the sort of standard units. You know, there was a meter bar that was just that every meter was a copy of. The thing with defining units of measurement in this way is that, as we know, physical matter wears and tears. It degrades in various ways. So even though you may think that you've built you know, your meter bar or your kilogram out of the strongest metal, the most durable metal possible, um, there will be changes to it. The kilogram that you mentioned was the most recent to get redefined and taken away from this physical basis. And that was based on the fact that they found out that it was losing weight compared to other kilograms and that the amount of weight was minuscule. It was 50 micrograms, which is about the weight of a single eyelash. But if you're talking about these high precision scientific settings, that sort of weight matters. Um, There's still not a settled theory about why exactly the kilogram was losing weight, but we think it was because there were perhaps tiny pockets of air trapped within the metal that sort of uh, filtered out of it over time. Hmm. The solution is to define units of measurement using constants of nature. These are uh, figures that we think are unchanging throughout time and space that have no, well, (laughs) they do have a link to physical reality, but not in the way a lump of metal does. So these are things like the speed of light. Um, One of the ones you mentioned is weight, and this is based on something called the Planck constant. Now, uh, it's pretty tricky to define, but the the Planck constant um, uh, defines the relationship between the energy of a photon and its frequency. And it's something that as far as we know, is, you know, sort of I don't know, uh, hardwired into the laws of the universe, the laws of physical reality as far as we know. Um, And so instead of measuring weight using a physical object, it's now measured using this very complicated uh, calculation that involves Planck's constant uh, and also measured using some quantum electromagnetic constants as well, which I won't get into here. So so, um, and that sort of approach by looking at constants uh, in in the the universe that has really helped us to find other things as well like uh heat for example which used to be um measured against the baseline of the triple point of of water the where 
where water can exist as steam, liquid and ice at the same time, 200 and something Kelvin, we now have a really complicated way of figuring out that based on subatomic movement and so on. Yeah. Just to finish up, how how important is it to get these things right when you're when you're measuring something that precisely? Like, do we have examples in, in history where a, a, a slight uh, change has led to disaster or, or why is it so important to have it so precise? Well, there are sort of, two, again, two answers to this question. One is based on consistency. We need a system where everyone agrees with one another about what a measurement is. You know, if you're looking for examples of that and why it's a bad when there isn't consistency, it, there are, well, there's lots. You know, a famous one is in 1999 uh, when NASA sent a, uh, a probe to Mars. It was the Mars Climate Orbiter. It cost $125 million to make, took 10 months to send it from Earth to Mars. It hit Mars's atmosphere and it burned up. It collapsed. It just completely disintegrated. The reason was one half of the team at NASA had been working in metric units and the other half of the team at Lockheed Martin had been working in US customary units or imperial hmm. units. They'd been making the same calculations using different units and the result was disaster. So this is why I often think about measurement as a form of language. It's a type of communication. And if we speak the same language, the same units, then there will be less friction in how we speak. So... Consistency is one side of it. And then the other side is precision. Now, some people say the history of modern physics is essentially looking for the next decimal place. The further we burrow down into the decimal place system, the more precise we get, the more accurate measurements we make and the more we learn about the universe around us. You know, in terms of accurate measurements, they underpin so much about modern society, whether that is GPS, for example, the satellites that orbit the Earth and make sure your phone knows where it is and you know where you are or whether that is something like the LIGO experiments, which are looking into the sort of the deep history of the universe and these the cosmological facts. Um, measurement supports all these. It doesn't just support them, it enables them. Without measurement, we could not look this far. It's such a fascinating subject um, that, that really shouldn't be by all rights, but it is the science of measurement that is explored in uh, James Vincent's brilliant book. It's called Beyond Measure, The Hidden History of Measurement from Qubits to Quantum Constants. Uh, James, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Jonathan. Future Proof with Jonathan McRae. Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland. Sunday morning at 10 on News Talk.